Welcome everyone, I'm Sam Sebastian and you're listening to How Are You Doing Really? In today's episode, I'm joined by Ellen Watson. Ellen is a teacher of Esalen Massage and Bodywork, Gabrielle Roth's Five Rhythms, Holotropic Breathwork, Vibrance, Touching Essence, Wake Up and Roar, and Your Body is a Musical Instrument. She's also the founder of Moving Ventures, which hosts life-changing educational programs at inspiring locations around the world. It's been an honor to have the opportunity to speak with Ellen, and uh, we, we go into what it's been like for her during COVID and the shifts in her work, um, and also talk about what it was like growing up in the South uh, as a white woman during the civil rights movement, uh, post-Civil War, and uh, how that really affected her um, growing up and eventually making it to California to study at the Esalen Institute and and being a student of various teachers and healing modalities that have really influenced the work that Ellen's doing in the world today. Uh, we, we also get into some of her personal experiences of um, being a white woman and how she is contributing to the Black Lives Matter movement and other various topics. So I'm really honored to have had the conversation with Ellen and I hope you all enjoy. So welcome everyone. I am here today with my teacher, Ellen Watson from Esalen. Uh, for the past two years, I've, I've had the opportunity of um, studying with her and a number of other Esalen teachers um, and, and training in the, the first uh, U.S. Esalen massage teacher training. So it was quite an honor, and I, um, I really just have had a <laughs> sweet experience with um, Ellen's style of teaching and uh, just the various practices that she in- incorporates in, into her teachings, movement, um, dance, and um, a lot of vocal singing, um, songs, mantras, um, and, and yes, she's, she's had, um, many, many years of experience and I'm, I'm just really excited to have this opportunity to bring her on today and, um, see how she's been doing. Uh, yeah. How, how, how have you been doing, um, these past couple of months during this mm. time of COVID and, uh, civil social and, and social justice movements and yeah, all of, all of the above, anything else that's, that's mm. there for you. Well, combining all of those topics will certainly take this time we have. Um, I was working in Indonesia on the island of Bali when COVID became um, known, I'll say. And Hearing the news come in through a place that has very little news and doing, I was in the middle of a massage training there and 
So I had to make decisions about whether to stay myself or whether to return to the U.S. and what, whether to cancel my programming, which was extending through June and then starting again in October in Indonesia. And I was going to China and Korea. So I had a whole Asian itinerary. And it became clear in early March that I needed to conclude the program that ended on the 15th and cancel or reschedule everything else. So I had, that was administrative, you know, that was logistical, circumstantial. And I felt sad about that. I felt sad about it for Indonesia, for the revenue that we generate through these programs to stop flowing into that country. And to miss the next Esalen teachers training, which was scheduled to start. So it was, this was intended to be a big year for, for me in Bali and bringing this next teaching group together. So I had to go through a lot of feelings about that. Mm -hmm. And once I got on airplanes and came back, it was as if nothing was happening other than the flights weren't so full. Mm -hmm. And in, Indonesia, I had my temperature checked and in Hong Kong, but I landed in the U.S. and nothing. There was no indication that anything was different. This mm. was in mid-March. So about the time I got home is when social distancing really was enforced in the U.S. And... I'll say it took me about three weeks to really land. I raced out immediately and went to Costco and all the stores and bought food because I thought we would be shut down for. And um, my brother stopped staying in our my home because he needed to be near his work because he was in an essential work. I had way too much food. Then he stopped staying near his business and started coming home. So it was just bizarre is all yeah. I can say. But what I did to ground myself was gardening. I'm an avid gardener that I don't have much time to do that. Mm -hmm. And my houseplants are very happy. And I have a thriving vegetable, fruit, and herb garden. And have really enjoyed that. It's beautiful. I'll say it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's because I attended to it daily. Yeah. And um, I guess anything we nurture daily. Thrives. Responds, yes. <laughs> and then business, being in the business of touch, whether it's teaching it or practicing it, this has been a strange reality to deal with. Mm-hmm. And having it governed by the government instead of by my own personal sense of what's appropriate, mm -hmm. I haven't liked. I appreciate because it is a business and people have licenses. And um, so I did set up a studio in my home that I hadn't done before. And I've been doing some Zoom classes with China, with Jingni, who you know. Oh, yeah. One yeah. of our, she's my long-term student and organizer for me in China. Mm -hmm. 
and that was that's been nice that I actually have I've, I'm shifting what I call myself to a transpersonal facilitator or coach and that encompasses everything somatic arts healing arts and spiritual arts mm-hmm. and one of my most highly regarded teachers the the main reason i stayed at esalen when i went in the 80s is an older man now named stanislav grof mm-hmm. he's a czechoslovakian md phd psychiatrist who was pivotal in the early research using lsd in czech in and his research institute in prague and he was then invited to the US by the um, Johns Hopkins University in Spring Grove, Maryland, and the US government wanted him to continue his research, not so much for mental and psychological problems, but to see if it, the government wanted to use, see if LSD was a truth serum, if it would be something <laughs> to use. I guess in the military, I don't know. Well, that didn't prove to be viable. Mm-hmm. That, that was not the best use. So his work was consciousness studies, is how do we help people shift paradigms out of one level of consciousness to another? And that was the focus of his research. His primary interest, his fascination was schizophrenia and at the time bipolar disorder is what it was called, manic depressive illness. And Freudian analysis, which is what he was trained in, did nothing, of course. So upon the discovery of LSD, Albert Hoffman sent samples to all the psychiatrists and said, take this yourself under these conditions and report back to me of your experience. And Stan, who was at the time an agnostic, he had been brought up by atheists and he had no leaning any way about is there God or isn't there God. It was just, it's just existentialism. Yeah. So when he took LSD, he had a direct experience with God telling him, Stan, what to do to help people with um transpersonal issues, we'll say, in spiritual emergency. Mm-hmm. And so he proceeded to do that, which was travel around the world to all cultures and listen to their music and um, see what types of ritual and ceremony they did mm-hmm. and rites of passage and ceremonially. And he was then invited to Esalen to when they became illegal in uh, the government and they stopped that LSD research because Mm -hmm. of the uproar of the sixties. Yeah. But he was invited to Esalen to be the scholar in residence in the early sixties, late sixties. And he was there for 20 years and his last four years there were my first four. And the level of, intelligence, the level of humility and humanity and humor and just brilliance. And he he created what was called for a long time 
holotropic breathwork. Mm-hmm. And those are that's a word formed of two Greek words that mean basically moving toward wholeness, holos and trapian. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a form of activating breath, listening to evocative music that moves up the chakra system, and with what's called abreactive bodywork, which is to support, it would be almost homeopathically. If you're in a contraction, it's to make the contraction more intense. So you want to break out. If it's that you lost out here in the ozone, it's to give you a contain or help you be more free. And then eventually your organism will come back. So it, mm. we're, I trained in that. I stayed because of him. And he became my guru, my main teacher, along with everything else I love. Mm-hmm. And for reasons in our greater culture, in the U.S. culture, during the late 80s and 90s, until now, we're in a renaissance, a psychedelic renaissance, a breathwork renaissance. Everybody's into breathwork now. Mm-hmm. And for a while, the door really closed. I couldn't even say the word at Esalen. I had to sign an agreement right after 9-11 because they were afraid if I did something, somebody would do something. And it was just the level of fear at Esalen was so remarkable. Yeah. And so I had to say I would never use that word again. And um, I'm so glad I'm alive and stands alive. So he's separated from using that word. And now it's the Groff legacy and Groff breathwork. And so I, during this period is when all this has happened. So that's been a total expansiveness for me again, feeling like I had been locked up for 20 years, unable to really share something that had been so pivotal in my life and that I believe is so important to society uh, Mm -hmm. for our evolution. And you asked me about this race and ethnicity and religion and gender, all of these issues that our current, uh, I don't know if I want to say the administration, but something is definitely not expensive going on. And the the protest movement, all of that, I am 100% in favor of. I think it's the healthiest thing that's happened in this country for years. And it needs to be turned into action that becomes policy that and vote that the whole younger generation really has to vote and vote responsibly locally because it's at the local level that we affect change and hire policemen and it's not the federal government. So I think that's really important for people to understand that to really become informed about who's running locally and all the way up to state. And because it it is the great change that will come about that we need, the social change and the change in policy starts at the local level, then it rolls through states. And after it reaches a certain critical mass, something like a third of states, then it it's going to be policy nationally before mm-hmm. long. With state, I live in the state of North Carolina right now. <laughs> which is one of the red states yeah. right now. I still vote in California because of my license, you know, all of my important things. So I maintain a residence and a post office and all that, even though I'm living 
in the state of North Carolina. Yeah. My vote would be more meaningful in North Carolina. It would. And, and that's so bizarre that, that that's the case. Well, Jer, I'm active in a political organization or a, a change organization called Represent Us. Mm-hmm. And they're doing a lot of telebanking, telephone calling. And one of their main focus is gerrymandering. And right now there's a big move to stop gerrymandering in Arkansas. So there's a lot of phone calls going to individual constituents, telling them to be aware of this. A lot of people aren't aware of even what gerrymandering is. So that's been a concern of mine. Yeah. Can, can you, for, for people listening, can you just give maybe a brief description of, of what that is exactly to, to your so knowledge? In the U.S., we have districts. The, the state is divided by districts mm-hmm. of voting districts. If you have a congressional representative, I live in the fifth district of North Carolina. And when I vote in the fifth district and my vote is counted in that district and then that the districts are combined to be added to be the electoral vote. Mm -hmm. So in order to, we'll say if I, if my district was blue, voted blue, and they wanted it to be red, then they would draw the line differently to get over here to a very red area. And it wouldn't hurt for some of that redness to get over here to the blue. Mm-hmm. And then it made it appear the whole state had voted red. And that is what gerrymandering is, to my understanding. Manipulating the, the, that, that the they manipulate and, yeah. the vote to indicate that this is a red state and that mm-hmm. if you look at if you look at that if you take time and are careful to see you will see that's happened in most every state that votes red yeah and so it's rigged it's called it, it, we it's rigged right now whether mm-hmm. it's we've become rigged in that way and we've become rigged through um, lobbying Mm-hmm. All of this happened in the last 50 years where it's almost impossible to to unrig, but it has to happen at the local level. And that's why I'm active in helping. I, I, I really um, appreciate you, you sharing that. You know, I, I, I know that it's something that I've become aware of a little bit more recently and, and wasn't aware of um, specific to gerrymandering and, I um I think about what's most important during this time in supporting the civil and social justice movements and and I think uh, the, all these different things that are happening um elevating um people of colors voices black people's voices specifically um protesting um donating to different organizations um yeah, there's there's so much, and and I think it really is going to come down to voting. You know, we we are going to need to come together and really, um, even if the systems are are rigged against us, um, speak up and and start advocating for our rights and asking for what 
we're wanting and needing to see shift in in our states and our the different districts that we live in um, and really empowering younger voters to get involved. And I think that's something that that's really come from uh, this experience of having Trump as, as president. And it's uh, there, there's been some, I guess you could say silver linings um, or, or even, you know, not to say it's a blessing, but it really has uh, allowed things to come to the surface that that maybe weren't or hadn't come to the surface before. Uh, and and something I wanted to kind of because you shared quite a bit uh, about just studying with Stanislav Grof and, and going into his work and um, how there's this expansiveness that's showing up now in you. And, and I'm, and you spoke about teaching uh, virtually uh, to, to people in China and specifically with, with Jing Ni, who we, we both know uh, and who was actually the first um, guest on, on this podcast. <laughs> With the work you were talking about with Stanislav Grof and and Grof um, his his work with breath work, and and talking about the transpersonal work that you're doing um, with with people all around the world at this time, can can you speak to that work? Like, how is it how is it showing up for you right now in in the work that you're doing? I'll say when I'm teaching massage it shows up by i'll say the primary means of contact other than skin to skin is the relationship through breath Mm -hmm. which is the closest connection we have to spirit our own and the great spirit so i teach i practice and i teach people in the way i teach is to just fall in love with the breath, their own and whoever they're working with. And that if we stay present in that way, that we learn a lot. And then I add a, a level of skill about directing breath, which is not so much a part of Esalen, basic Esalen massage, mm-hmm. but adding sound, certain sounds that, release bands of held energy mm-hmm. whether it could be the ocular band or the oral band or the thoracic band different bands where people contract mm-hmm. and so it could be the sounds of qigong you know each organ has a sound it could be the chakra sounds mm-hmm. it could be any sound it could be the do re mi fa so la ti do yeah. Anything that yeah. get that p- get people to sound from different parts of their being. And I believe my experience is that sounding, making sounds of any kind has just been socially unacceptable. And that children are stopped at some point from the natural sounding that all children do, making sounds, to people are embarrassed by any sound that they make 
Yes. If done in public, whether it's the sound sobbing, crying, people are embarrassed to cry in front of others or express through sound um, anger or fear. I know that that as you you speak about this, I, I think about how it's shown up in my life and how uh, from a, a young age, I, I learned to keep certain things in and not to make too much noise because it was, oh no, I might uh, be too loud and, and people might not like that or it might be perceived in a, a certain way and, and very much just having this like parenting that kind of, I, I suppressed the use yeah. of my voice and and it's been a, a process for me in, in the past uh, five, six years where I'm like, I want, I want to use my voice again and I want to express. And even in the confines of, of a bedroom and, and making sound with my lover, it, I, I find myself holding back and it's so crazy. It's so crazy. And, and it, it's almost like I, I look to the other t- to get permission um, and, and one of the things that me and my partner Finn practice is Tantra. And we, we go through practices of, of making, um, or using our breath, mm. uh, attuning to each other and actually tuning into each other's breath and, and syncing up at times. Mm. And, and then also using sound to, to express as well. And, giving like even trying on a sound or a word that we hadn't used um, just to get get the practice of it you know because there's so much fear and, and kind of shame I think around it for me and I'm sure others as well and and really just finding a way to empower each other and and I think what you're speaking to is just so important um, and especially, with people who've, who've experienced oppression, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think about um, a conversation that I had uh, two weeks ago with, with a guest on, on my show, and um, it's my friend Joel. And he, he was talking about a book. Um, I, I can't remember the exact name, but I, I think it was Why Do or, or Why Black People Shout. And, mm. um, and he, he was talking about how because they've been uh, oppressed so much and, and haven't been able to use their voice, it's, it's almost like this generational ancestral kind of buildup of, of not being able to express. And, and it's so unfortunate that that has been the case. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just think about places that I've been in and one of my safe places or at times can be safe is, is being at Esalen. And I think about one of the experiences that, that I had with you specifically and, and our, our class at the Bass where mm. we did different toning and singing and uh, combine that with touch and, and body work. And it was just, there was like a, of reverence, I want to say, uh, mm. around one being in that space, being at the baths, and then the other being just like the way that sound brings 
people together is just, it, it kind of blows my mind. Cause if, if we can find a way to kind of sync up with our, our, our sound and our, our voice, it's just, it's a really special thing that happens. It's true. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm also curious about like your, your experience around using your voice. Is it something that you've always just felt so comfortable with or have there been times throughout your life where you felt you've been challenged um, being a woman? Uh, Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, I didn't grow up. I grew up with permission to make almost no sound. It was, I was quieted as a child and I joined the church choir and the choir master told me to lip sing <laughs> instead of sing. So, so I had very little permission to make sound until I went to Esalen. Not much sound, like you say, uh, making love. Just all, I was embarrassed about all sound and judgmental about my voice. So, when I went to Esalen, along with Brow, just I experienced educational freedom as well as physical sense of spaciousness. And uh, everything that I studied, whether it was dance or touch, it, it all just br- made me such a larger human being. And sound, heal, there was not such a word as sound healing, but it was toning. I took a lot of toning workshops. I took Singing Gestalt, which was an in-house program at the time by Nancy Lunny, the director of programming. And we did it in her bedroom. She had a piano. And every Wednesday afternoon for three hours, we would first tune in to find songs that related to our feeling state. And then we would choose one of those and we would sing it, which she would have a song sheet. And she could accompany easily. And it was not about performance. It was about singing our feeling. And I learned then to not try to be perfect. To let more soul come through than performing and trying to be perfect, which was stressful. And it was straining to my voice. Mm. Because I was trying to be perfect. So that was a 10-year. I went every Wednesday for 10 years. And I took musical theater groups that she would co-lead with a different director or somebody. A number of those. And wrote my own song, words to other songs and perform those. And so I just, everything. And then I did a lot of a body of work called Continuum which is replicates amniotic movement before birth, watery, the watery side of movement that combines breath, breathing patterns with specific sounds that go with those. And I did oh probably a thousand hours of that. So, and we would go to the baths and be dolphins swimming back and forth around each other and making sound underwater. And then we would put our mouth on people. So, so that was in the eighties and which there was a, a much greater sense of exploration during that period. And that got closed down a bit 
in the later Mm -hmm. 90s and the earlier part, I think it's opening up again in Mm -hmm. some ways. But and breath work, the holotropic breath work and all other forms of breath work that I studied. Sound was part of it, making a lot of sound, powerful sound. Um, different sounds to different feeling states. You know, sometimes it would be the eternal ohm and a moment of enlightenment and cosmic oneness and nirvana and all of that. And then other times in the bardos down in the hell realm, screaming and yelling and being tortured. So that's how I regain permission to make mm-hmm. sound. It, it It sounds like you you were you were given permission to to have different expressions of and around your different emotions that That's you've right. you had been experiencing and i um I, i'm i'm also curious what what was um what was life like pre uh pre esalen for you and um, how, how, how did, like, ha- did, did you go through a big shift in, in, in that part time of your life or, um, yeah, just, yes. Cause I, I know I, I had a pretty eye opening experience once I had been to Esalen before that it, it was quite a different, um, lifestyle that I was in. I had. A family background of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder or manic depressive illness that and alcoholism within my family of origin that took a lot of my attention in trying to help various people. Um, Those challenges resulted in my earlier relationship choices, being people who needed a lot of help and. Uh, I was exhausted at 33, 31. I was 31 when I went. And I had been married three times. My first husband died very young of a congenital problem. And my second husband realized in our successful relationship that he was gay. So we parted friends. And I married someone who was not gay. But he had a lot of addiction issues mm-hmm. and it was and he was abusive. So from that, I went to Esalen. So and I needed healing on all levels personally yeah. in every way. So I used the I mean, I would have spent years with a psychologist or a therapist or some some attempt to find the remarkable um multi-tiered offerings I found at Esalen. The teachers who were there at the time, the whole circumstance under which I went, it couldn't have been better. Mm -hmm. Dick Price was still alive and he was hospitalized for schizophrenia and he worked with me a lot in my first year. I mentioned Stan Groff was there and Mm -hmm. living there. So I was... Every time he had a workshop, I was assisting or doing something with Stan. And I housed it for him, and I really just uh, drunk him in like a fine wine. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and Terrence McKenna, Terrence McKenna, who was one of my most influential teachers in the world realm of plant medicine and paradigm shifts. <clears throat> and he is the one who went to the Amazon in the 60s and propagated plants to brew ayahuasca because he foresaw the uh, destruction of the Amazon basin and was afraid that those plants would be lost. So he brought his ayahuasca to Esalen. And I was part of a research project sitting with a lot of people in the 80s and early 90s. And so I had this remarkable support system. And then Gabrielle Roth was at Esalen a lot, and she was my teacher. And I'll say the what I got from all my main teachers, particularly Gabrielle and Stan, was to delve into the dark, to not be afraid of it, not just to be a bliss bunny looking for the light, mm -hmm. but to really embrace, dance with the shadow, dance with whatever I viewed as dark or less desirable to really explore that and then it would be a great teacher and it was true i hear that and and i think about um something that kind of gets lost in a lot of spiritual communities is kind of spiritual bypassing not not really like being with our our shadow and um exploring what's what's in that for us and it sounds like you really um, you had some some teachers who helped you to kind of go into that in a way that allowed you to maybe integrate those parts of yourself. It's true. And I think the beauty of of having them as mentors and teachers for my first experiences on both plant and other entheogens and pathogens psychedelics was that it wasn't recreational and so when what is frequently called a bad trip occurs that it's not bad at all it's if you're in the right setting and have the right mindset that it's showing something either metaphorically or biographically or um, transpersonally archetypally that that relates to some state inside me that if i allow that and honor that and look at it and i won't even call heal it because sometimes we need that that gives one of the things that gives us strength and helps us set boundaries and know where our no is so we can really live in a yes mm -hmm. and so that was an extremely valuable part of for me the psychedelic experience and learning how to really be a good sitter for people uh, instead of a guide, that's not what we do. It, we truly sit for and the trust that the psyche of just like we do on the table, we trust that this person will heal themselves and all we do is help open any blocks mm -hmm. to their own transformation or healing on the table through a set of skills we learn, but we're not doing it. It's mm -hmm. them being open enough to allow it to happen. Yeah, I, I tell um, a lot of my clients, it's, it's I'm not here to fix you. I'm not here to heal you. 
Um, but I'm, I'm here to support your body's natural um, process of healing itself. And I think about all that I've, I've been through up until this point and, and still am going through and um, just to bring it to what's happening right now in, in my life, in the world. And I'm, I'm looking at what I'm sitting with around um, internalized racism and, and racism and how growing up in the family that I grew up in and having the parents that I had and living where I was living, just all these different components that um, contributed to what developed with in me uh, internally. And I, I, I've, I've had the, the fortune to, to speak with therapists, uh, with my therapist about this and um, being in communities where we're, we're having these discussions openly. Um, it, it's been really healing for me. And, and I, 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 I keep trying to think of what, like I, I continue to have conversations around these issues um, with my friends, with, with acquaintances, with people who are showing up and wanting to have these conversations. And I'm wondering what, for some someone like you, um, just growing up in a different uh, era and, and, growing up in a different part of the U S um, like, what would you uh, say to someone who who's lived um, or, or grown up in, in the way that you have being um, a, a, a white woman who grew up in the South, if, if I'm mm-hmm. have that correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and specifically now, like what, what kind of work or, or practices are available that, that you're participating in and, and that they might be able to bring in as, as well? Mm. Well, I did grow up. I was born in 1948, so I was in the midst of all of that social unrest and um, civil rights, the desegregation of schools. And that the unspoken racism and the class differences between black and white, um, water fountains and places on the bus and uh, racial profiling, I'll say, Mm -hmm. unconscious racial profiling Mm -hmm. by well-intentioned people that just had been part of that system for generation after generation, that somewhere in me innately I knew this was not right. And I had mixed-raced friends. I couldn't even have friends who were Yankees, Yankees from northern states. With my head friends who were Yankees, they weren't welcome to come home with me. So it was not just color, race, it was regional areas. There were still a lot of open wounds left over from the Civil War, which at that time was 
still recent. I went to a hundred year commemoration of the battle firing on Fort Sumter that um, started the Civil War because my uncle was in college at the Citadel, the military college of the South. So it took some time for me to really see that this, my, the South was not the way everywhere was. I wasn't an activist. I didn't march. That, that is, I don't know why that didn't come to my table or my awareness, maybe because of the dysfunction with my family, within my family, that I had to pay so much attention to uh, my mother's ongoing spiritual emergency crises that up, ended up in upheaval all the time. So maybe that got my attention more than what was going on in the larger culture. Mm-hmm. But I'll say the most important thing is right now, relative to what needs to be done, when I talked about gerrymandering and being active locally, I mean, I'm a member of a, I don't know, I texted something to defend at a number, and now I'm in a, a I think most everybody's African-American, but it's an activist group and tells where protests are and mm-hmm. um, if there's something important to do. So the, I do that. I'm active in that way. Mm-hmm. And um, lifting up people in leadership roles that I meet. There's mm-hmm. a young woman in my hometown in North Carolina who is third generation independent business person, uh, African-American. Her father was actually, his parents were slaves, her grandfather. And so they were the first person in the county to have their own business, black person. And she is growing hemp, industrial hemp on her father's land, 98 acres, and making products. She's a body worker. And she's decided to shift from being a massage therapist in North Carolina and having a spa because part of COVID and the other part is it's too restricting to what can be used and what not the policy. Mm -hmm. So she's shifting more like I am to calling herself something different. So get active locally is the main thing. Mm -hmm. I, I think about um, what you're sharing and, and I, I agree. I think it's really important to elevate um, and and uh, support people of color and who who have experienced discrimination and who have um, been less privileged and and really um, support them in in gaining the same rights um, so that there's more equality uh, across the board uh, and. And I think about another component that that's really been up for me is around um, healing what what's going on internally, and and I I've read I I've read about half of White Fragility. Um, I I've also been listening to quite a, a few podcasts. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Resma Minicum, uh, the author of my my grandmother's hands, and 
he has a a free um, five part course online uh, for people mm. to to start yeah educating themselves mm. and and learning language and um, ways in which they can can start practicing uh, things to to really work through some of this this trauma that mm. and and internalized um, racism systemic racism and, and ways in which we can can address that uh, from the inside out mm. and um, yeah so I'd, I just wanted to mention mention that piece because it, it it it's very yeah I think all things are important and yes. and I I do think ultimately it's it's really going within and healing our own yeah yeah because I can I can show up to protests uh, time and time again, but if that's all that I'm doing and and not really digging and deeper and and noticing what's coming up and noticing how if I'm in a certain neighborhood and I'm walking by a person of, of color what what happens inside of my body like there are physical and emotional reactions that sometimes happen inside of me as i'm walking by uh i'm predominantly men um and and being a gay man and also um hispanic latino whatever you want to call it um i've i've walked through life and and experienced rejection experienced um being discriminated against and and also feeling like my life has been threatened and so i i know that there's there's layers to all of what i'm experiencing and and i guess my ask for people is to start pulling back those layers as if we're Mm, like this onion and, and continue to see what's what's there what's underneath it all i um i wanted to ask you one more question uh before we we wrap things up and um you've you've shared so much about the work that you're doing and and uh, a bit about your process and and where you grew up and the communities that you're involved in and there's this shift that is happening right now and and has been happening um and and i i guess i'm wondering what or or how do you envision um the world 50 years from now i know it's a a big (laughs) and then we can we can just i don't know see what comes up um if you really feel into your heart and and just seeing what wants to be said from there well i can i proceed this with an if if we take this opportunity given to us by covid and the global awakening to systemic racism It's not just this country, it's globally. Mm -hmm. That question for the two thirds of humanity that's connected to the internet, 
to a third is not. They have no idea what we're doing. So to the two-thirds that is aware, in our hands lie the ability to create a future that is good for all without it becoming utopia or nirvana. If this is still the training ground for humans to become more human, and we're in an ongoing evolutionary unfolding, my fantasy, my dream would is that we find a way other than war to solve human conflict. And if all the money that is spent on offense and defense globally, especially in this country, were spent on education and supporting people and conflict resolution and mediation and food to share that nobody needs to be hungry because in truth, nobody does need to be hungry. Mm -hmm. If we could find a way to channel that energy from, if we want to call it the masculine paradigm mm -hmm. of, of, of making war, not that women don't make war, but it's not usually with weapons. It's with their energy or, you know, their tact. They have different tactics. Yeah. So if we can find a way to become peacemakers, to mm -hmm. actually go for what will create peace, I know it's possible because the way we did process at Esalen and just the same kind of issues that might lead somebody, a woman, to wanting to kill another woman, or jealousy over a man or two men over another man or whatever the situation might be. If we can find a way to be clear and clean and really and express Mm -hmm. then it never has to build into an aggressive act against a larger group based on internalized personal unresolved business. Mm -hmm. As you say, that's the deep dive of inquiry that must be true for each of us. So in my world, 50 years from now, would include no war, that there mm -hmm. are other forms of resolving conflict and that the financial part of the war machine, all of that money is directed into something different. I think about um, what you're, you're sharing and, and I, I know that there's certain parts of the world, certain communities in which um, rather than punishing people for uh, whatever crime that they committed, they they do more of a repair process. So say somebody robbed uh, a, wo a woman and, and took her purse. There, what would happen from that point would be, okay, we're, we're going to introduce the two of you and have you meet and create some kind of human connection. And, and then from there... It would be let's let's make things right, and how how could we make that right, and and understand where each other um, is coming from, and mm. and maybe this person's underprivileged, and their the way in which they learned to get things in life was by stealing, you know. Um, who knows? That's that's one example, but I I hear that, and what you're saying is is shifting. 
um, the way in which conflict is resolved and um, also no war. And, and I think about how much energy and time is put into war, you know, and in order for this shift that you're speaking to and that I think a lot of us are, are wanting to see in the world, we're going to have to put just as much time and energy, if not more. It's true. If not more. And, and I, I think it's possible. And I, I, hope, I hope we see, see more and more of, of the shifts that we're wanting to see in this world. And, and there is somewhat of a, an awakening, I think, happening. So there, there have been blessings in my life from this experience of COVID for the past couple of months and just starting new creative projects, stepping into things that I, I've been like sitting on that haven't I've never really been like, I'm going to do this. And now that I have the time and the time to slow down and really be with, it's like things are just opening up. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it, Ellen. Thank you for doing (laughs) these podcasts. I'm delighted to get to know you a little better through this medium. Thank you all so much for listening today. If any of you'd like to find out more about the work that I do, you can go to samsebastian.com. That's S-A-M-S-E-B-A-S-T-I-A-N.com. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to me via email. That's sam at samsebastian.com. Much love.